This is Barbara Glickstein with Healthcetera. A diagnosis of cancer has a profound impact on the life of the patient and their family. A major challenge for people with cancer is the very initiation of regular physical activity. That's probably true along the lifespan of the young as well as through the elderly. But imagine if you're someone who's living with cancer who maybe didn't have an active physical component to your daily living. Then imagine being faced with a cancer diagnosis. So influencing the way you can have a strategy to cope with illness and staying active is something our guest today has committed her research and her clinical profession to. Dr. Kristen Faselli is a senior nurse scientist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. She's also a 2022 Betty Irene Moore Nurse Leader and Innovator Fellow at the University of California Davis School of Nursing, where we first met. Welcome to Health Cetera, Dr. Faselli. Oh, thank you, Barbara. It's wonderful to be here. And please call me Kristen. I will. Um, so you have this story that has influenced your work, and you've agreed to share it with our listeners. Please do. Thank you. Um, I have been an oncology nurse for my entire career. Um, the number of decades I will not share here, but it is multiple. And I've always been very interested as an oncology nurse, treating people with various types and stages of disease, why some people do well with their cancer treatment and some do not. And originally when I started my doctoral work, I was very interested in why certain people would receive the same chemotherapy, very similar people receiving the same chemotherapy and some would end up in the hospital right away. And some were very minimally affected by it in terms of side effects. And that that intrigued me. I started to study genetics, um, was very interested in looking for these obscure changes in the genetic sequence that might might predict this. And it, it is really finding variants in DNA sequences that would affect very small numbers of people. And I was struggling sort of with that and the impact that I could have. And right around the time that I was finishing my PhD work, both of my parents were, were diagnosed with cancer in, in quick succession. And one had fairly advanced lung cancer and received really significant treatment, but went on to recover and do well. And it's up and around and racing cars and doing crazy things. And then another had a very, very early stage cancer, only had surgery, but quickly declined, became frail, isolated, immobile, had to move into a residential living space. And that sort of shifted my focus of who does well and who does not and why. And it made me make a big turn away from genetics, which everyone is very excited about and wants to throw funding at, into this much bigger space about healthy longevity and, and how can we be well, even when we have illnesses. And this is a much more amorphous <laughs> space. But from some other experiences that I had with the Oncology Nursing Society and synthesizing evidence into guide, national clinical practice guidelines, it has always stuck with me that one of the best non-pharmacologic interventions that we have out there is physical activity for so many different problems for people with cancer and just for everybody. Our bodies are meant to move. And when we don't, metabolically, from a muscular perspective, skeletal perspective, for all sorts of different ways, uh, it, it, it is not good. It's not good for our bodies. And then add months of 
different types of cancer treatments on top of that. And it's just a recipe for, for disaster. So I have changed my focus and really looking at how all of the unsexy health promotion things that we all hear about and think, yeah, I know I should be eating better. I know I should be moving more and I'll get to that when I'm not so busy or perhaps when I can afford a, a wider variety of foods. There's lots of things that get in the way of healthy longevity, but I think it's important as a researcher to try to focus in on all of the ways to make that possible for lots of folks. For my starting place, <laughs> I'm really working with uh, older adults as they transition off active chemotherapy and other types of cancer therapy, because in my clinical experience, that's I have found that to be a really risky time. While people are receiving cancer treatment, if they're they're hopefully receiving a lot of support from their physicians, their nurses, pharmacists, lots of different folks, um, very intense. They're talking to us almost weekly. And then suddenly they come to the end of therapy and it's kind of like, congratulations, you're done. We'll see you in three months. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> and, and nothing, not much else after that. There's nothing, but we have just beat their bodies up for months. So now we have this treatment-induced frailty dumped on top of whatever comorbidities, illnesses, lack of physical fitness that they came to their cancer diagnosis with months before. So now they're in even worse shape, and there's nothing specific or tailored um, encouraging them to make any changes right now. And that's the time when they most need to be starting to move back to health. And even in places where um, patients are fortunate enough to have survivorship programs, they often don't start for a year or more after treatment. But why is that? What, why would they wait a year? The, generally, after treatment ends, you come in every three months or so to be checked for treatment, adverse event resolution, and disease recurrence. So it's that, that first sort of disease surveillance, active, watchful waiting for a while. And certainly, there is a... There are people talking to you about how are you doing? Are you getting up and around? Are you eating better? You know, are your symptoms resolving? But not a real focus on you need to be doing these healthy living things. And here's how we can make this work for you. There's just not enough time and the infrastructure is not built to have that discussion outside of a dedicated survivorship program, which not every service has. And even if they do, it doesn't start until much later. So that's why I'm trying to build an intervention that we can get to folks just as they're coming off of treatment and saying, wow, you've been through a lot. What works for you to start getting more active? What works for you to start moving from this sort of survival eating while you're on chemotherapy and all you can eat is vanilla and sugar? It's like, okay, that's we need to change that now. What does what healthy look like for you now? And what do you want to do? What's going to motivate you to get up off the couch because you're so tired from your treatment? So before you talk about your intervention, um, two things. One, there is some research about the use of some physical activity during treatment. And I don't know if that applies to individuals uh, in the uh, individual elders. And also that this physical activity needs to be tailored to the individual. And maybe you'll address that in the intervention you're designing. But what about um, what do we know about uh, physical activity during cancer care treatment? Thank you for asking that question, because I don't want anyone to interpret what I'm trying to do after treatment as to discount or minimize. One of the strongest 
areas of evidence. And probably most of the research is happening for people while they're receiving treatment to manage uh, cancer-induced fatigue, depression, anxiety, well-being, sleep. Oh my goodness. Sleep disturbances during treatment are, are huge and they sort of amplify um, fatigue, which has a, a slightly different mechanism of action, but the two together are just so, so challenging for folks. So there is a great body of evidence for physical activity in just about any form, but something dur during treatment. And then if we can, but so the challenge is that so few people receive recommendations or they're just given very global recommendations. Like when you pick up a clinical practice guideline, it says recommend physical activity during treatment. What does that mean? Right. Yeah. So not a lot of guidance for the clinician, not a lot of motivation or time for the clinician to work that in when they're so busy, you know, looking for potentially lethal side effects <laughs> during treatment. So that's going to take up the 15 minutes that they have focusing on the acute needs. Um, so not, and clinicians aren't specifically trained in how to make exercise recommendations. And then for patients, they may be so fatigued. And also culturally, a lot of people say, oh, you know, wife, husband, daughter, parent, you're so tired. You rest. I'll go make the meal for you. I'll go shopping for you. You just stay on the couch and I'll bring it to you. And that's a supportive, loving sort of thing, but it's not helping that person avoid becoming deconditioned. So people who are listening for themselves or loved ones, then, uh, Christian, would you recommend they ask this question of their provider and then um, ask whether or not is there um, a physical therapist uh, who specializes in the care of people undergoing cancer treatment or even um, an exercise physiologist consult who may have this expertise? How would you guide them? And then we'll move into your innovation. No, I think that that is a really important point. The question that is important to ask, because we already know the answer is yes, physical activity is important. And anybody who tells you no, <laughs> I would question why that is. But the, the specific question that would encapsulate all of that is, are there any restrictions for my cancer diagnosis, for my treatment that I'm receiving, where I am right now, that I need to know when I plan my physical activity? If a person has metastatic disease to the bones, for example, they're, they're, they might be limited in the amount of weight bearing or weight lifting that's wise for them because of the fragility of the bones. So asking those questions, I think that just any oncology clinician could address that very easily with the training that they have. So that's an important question to ask. In terms of getting referrals to rehabilitation or an exercise physiologist, those are wonderful resources, but our reimbursement system right now is often restricting us from making those referrals unless there is a clinical need, like a fall with injury or some crisis event that allows us to, to be reactive to get those services. So I, I think part of why I'm so passionate about the work that I'm doing is how do we get ahead of the crisis event and keep people strong and mobile so that they don't have such an injury that then they're suddenly eligible for the physical therapy that we wish we could have given them before. Exactly. Um, although this is, may not be uh, accessible for everyone, as you mentioned, and insurance reimbursement not being uh, covering these, these, I often tell others um, in my circle socially, you know, when someone comes down with a difficult diagnosis like cancer, um, it, and you're close enough to them to make this, op make this an opportunity, 
um, skip the flowers um, and skip some of the chocolates maybe and see if a circle of friends can put together um, some pool of money that would offset this. And uh, just recently I did an interview about financial toxicity in, in for people facing difficult diagnoses, which we won't divert too far off of, but that's just a tip for the listener who may not have this kind of coverage or can use a one or two sessions with an expert who then can create a program they can do on their own with occasionally being followed up. So now let's move to your innovation, Christian. What is it and where are you along this path of your research and creation of this innovation? Oh, thank you for asking that question. It's, there's so much going on. I mean, not to, um, gush over the fellowship too much, but it deserves it. Um, This is such a wonderful opportunity to bring together lots of different ideas. So often in research, you're, you're sort of honing down to a single element, a one size fits all. Let's just test this tiny thing and then ask the next question, do the next study. And I'm trying to take a more of a holistic approach across all of the things that we've discussed so far. So what we're designing is a voice-driven intervention over the um, internet. So it's uh, available to anybody with some kind of computer, laptop, smartphone. We're building a post-treatment frailty assessment. So an interactive voice assessment to see how functional and symptomatic a person is as they're coming off of of their treatment? Are they able to get up and move around or are they mostly in the chair most of the day? What is what sort of their activities of daily living, et cetera, and getting that that baseline assessment and then building some tailored health promotion education about physical activity, about healthy eating, mindfulness, cognitive function assessment, and some some interventions there. an eight-week intervention, sort of giving some tailored education around those areas, depending on the person's baseline function and their um, self-stated goals in terms of what they want to achieve. So it's very customized. And then doing another frailty assessment to see if there's been any improvement. We'll have people wear Fitbit watches to see if their steps and their sleep changes over the course of that. But I think what's really exciting about this is not only are we using really great evidence, such as how terrific physical activity is for so many problems, but we're sort of doing it in a digital health intervention way, co-designing it with older adults. So I'm working with a fantastic team of human-centered interaction specialists, uh, I'm sorry, human-computer interaction specialists in a human um, design way. There's a lot of Letters. A lot of words. Tell us what that means uh, in in terms of when something is human centered in its design. So starting with the end user right from the get go. So I was trained and many people in, in my business are trained that you look at the evidence, you as the smart researcher design a great idea, you put it out there, then you recruit the eligible population to come in and try it out. And then you look at the results. And very often we're like, oh, that didn't work the way that I thought it was, or they didn't like it as much as I thought they would. I thought it was a great idea. And then you have to do another study to figure out what went wrong. (laughs) Human-centered design is, okay, this is an intervention for older adults with cancer. 
let's gather a bunch of them together and say, hey, we have this idea. We can do a whole bunch of different things in this area. What What's going to help you the most? And okay. do you have any, do you have any insights into those answers just yet? Or is it too early? Um, you know, we've been, it's been really interesting for me as someone new to this, this area to sit in on some of these focus groups and to do some very preliminary testing with a, a you know, a prototype of the, the device that we're building and get feedback from folks. Um, one of, one of the stories that I was not part of, but the, the Stanford team did some work because this is voice driven. We're trying to make it multi-sensory. So it is not just like, it's not just voice. It's not just a speaker or a device talking to you. There's also a screen that has visual cues, closed captions. It, it, in addition to hearing the question, you see the text and then a, a, a picture. So if it's asking about, do you need any help with bathing? There's a, a tub and a shower and the questions there and the potential answers are there. Trying to lower the cognitive load. So trying to remember everything that the, the voice is saying to you. There's other cues there as well. But there was a participant who was totally blind who was sitting in and he could hear what was happening, but there's a little bit of a delay in the AI driven system right now. Um, so have you ever used a system where you put in an answer and then there's like a little spinning something that just says one moment, please, or processing? Whenever yes. You, yeah. So we're people who are visually uh, not impaired. We know what that looks like. But this gentleman couldn't hear or couldn't see what, what was happening. So he thought that the system didn't hear him. So he kept trying to repeat his answers and he was getting frustrated. And it was just that everybody else could see the little spinning one moment, please. And he couldn't. I see. So we've now added in um, a, a sound, a I'm thinking sound. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. So that seems like a small thing. But there's a lot not, of things. not for the person whose sight doesn't have good sight or blind, right? Yeah. That's that's a very that's a very inclusive um, approach to this work. One of the things I've been thinking about, and you mentioned something earlier about uh, loved ones wanting people to rest and just sit and I'll do everything for you, is sort of this myth that, um, or maybe um, that intensity and physical exercise actually may not be a good thing. That even the person living with the cancer experience might feel as though I may be doing harm. So is the innovation address that concern and maybe some other myths that people have um, in order to get off the couch, if you will? Yes, uh, there are a lot of a lot of myths and a lot of cultural beliefs. And one of the things that we're doing is an ancillary study is some focus groups just talking to people about, and I've actually, they are focus groups divided by self-identified racial and ethnic groups. So we have uh, um, people who identify as white, black, um, Hispanic, or Latinx, and Asian, because the literature, can't get away from it, the literature tells us that there are differences in the types of activity, fear of falling, fall rates with injury really differ among these groups based on the literature. So I wanted to bring people together and, and hear from them sort of, you know, how is physical activity viewed, especially for older adults culturally for, for your group. Now that you've experienced cancer, you know, what are your thoughts about being physically active? Is it too intimidating? And did anyone tell you that you should? What is your built environment like in terms of do you have an intact sidewalk or any green spaces in, in, in the area where, where you live? And just a little bit of discussion that we've had thus far, there's a lot of differences in terms of family groups, especially 
um, in homes where there are multiple generations living in the, the same home, the way that they um, approach physical, physical activity um, or the grandma's on the couch and everybody take care of her and don't let her get up sort of sort of thing. And uh, we're hoping to tease some of that out so that we can have more culturally inclusive physical activity options for folks, not not to generalize, but if um, someone who is Asian is already doing Tai Chi out in the park, then that might be something that's right for them versus, um, you know, some people are like, I want to go for, you know, walks and increase my stamina with that. Th things might be very different depending on someone's cultural experience and location. Beautiful. We have just a moment left. I'm going to let you do the takeaway uh, for our listeners. What would you like to leave them with this afternoon? I would think that the most important, oh, this is, this is important. I have to make sure I say this, this, this properly. Um, just because we're getting older doesn't mean that there isn't life left in us. Even when we experience challenging things like chronic illness, disability, trauma, don't discount uh, an older person's ability to bounce back and have wellness. Even if they can't recover to where they were before their cancer experience, there is still wellness to be had. And there are ways to get there that are not intimidating or dangerous. And we really want to find ways to help people be as active and well as they want to be, even after cancer. Kristen, please pronounce properly your last name. I think I may not have said it properly. It is vessel. It rhymes with vessel like a boat. Right. And it's always challenging no matter where I go. I apologize for that mispronunciation. I want to thank you, Dr. Kristen Fassel, who is a senior nurse scientist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. And she is a 2022 Betty Irene Moore Nurse Leader and Innovation Fellow at the University of California at Davis School of Nursing. I want to end with a quote that I found in a previous um, article about you. And it says, quote, everyone deserves to be supported on their cancer recovery journey with tools and information that can help increase wellness and develop resilience. This is Barbara Glickstein. You're listening to Health Cetera. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me.